Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Joined today, Chief Lifeguard, star of Bondi Rescue podcast host, it's Bruce Hopkins. How are you doing today, Bruce? Yeah, I'm good, Alex. How are you, mate? I'm doing good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Well, I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, which is uh, pretty much around the beaches of of Bronte and Bondi. So I've grown up there my whole life and went to school up at Dover Heights, um, which is just uh, up the hill from Bondi. So I grew up all around that area most of my life and <clears throat> and enjoyed the, uh, you know, surfing and, and all the water sports that, that came with it, living close to the beach. Living on the beach, the water access was probably easy. Was it always a passion to do anything you could outside being close to the beach? yeah pretty much most of the time was was outdoors like where we play footy or cricket or you know in the backyard or down the beach you know we'd play uh a lot of touch footy in between going surfing and things like that so it was always something doing uh down the beach did you prefer footy or cricket more oh look i like both but um i was probably better at playing cricket so Probably enjoyed playing that more than uh, football. I played football up until the end of school. End of school, then it was, um, I was always too skinny and too light to become a, a football player. So cricket was the uh, was the one. Living in the United States, we get footy at one o'clock in the morning. And sometimes if I'm up that late, I'll watch it. And it's just amazing, the athletes that play that sport. It's different than the rugby style, but they're more running all over there, but they're still tackling each other. Is that the environment when you see those games or when you go to those games? Is it really like what we're watching on TV where people are just involved? They're so focused on the game. Yeah, it's pretty full on. It's it's um, there the impact. You know, it's just uh, massive. They really just smash each other, and <laughs> it's something that uh, you know, your body's, you know, they've probably got about a ten year, twelve year career. If if they have that, a lot of people get injured prior and, and can't continue on. So it's a pretty uh, solid impact sport that only has a small timeline. But yeah, but it's great to watch. So. You talked about how you were think you were too skinny to play at a high level. Were you always trying to find something that could fit your statue and but you were enjoying and having fun at the same time? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I was about six foot, a bit over six foot, so I had the height, but it was pretty much um cricket or surfing and and even surfing to some extent is more for a shorter person. You look at all the uh pro surfers and they're probably only about five foot five up to about five foot eight, you know, so they're only short. <clears throat> so I um, still enjoyed the surfing, um, but I got in a lot of ocean Ironman racing, which was the, the ocean ski board paddling and the running and the swimming. So I did a lot of that and enjoyed uh, doing that uh, sort of suited my physique a lot better. And then also from there, I, um, Continued on doing the uh, ski paddling as I got older and still doing the ocean ski paddling, which has been quite good. And, and just recently much still made the um, Australian team to go to Portugal for the World Championships in uh, October this year. So, yeah, it's a sport that you can keep doing as you get older. So as long as your body and shoulders hold together, you can you can keep going. 
was there any athletes, surfers, people in those competitions that kind of were inspiring for you? Someone that you looked up to, like, they are amazing at this. They keep positive, they're fit and everything. Anyone like that? Oh, look, I mean, in the day, there was like uh, cricket, for example, I was always like a, a great chapel was someone that, you know, he's the captain of the Australian team, a leader. And, and so I sort of looked up to him um, during that period. But on the surfing side, you know, the Iron Man would have been Grant Kenny was the the golden boy at the time. You know, he was uh, sort of created the first sort of professional athlete in, in the Ironman circuit. And so I looked up to him and, and also in the surfing world, you know, I had, uh, there, was, there was Mark Richards, there was Barton Lynch, uh, you know, Tom Carroll. They were sort of a few years older than me, but sort of the people that you looked up to and, and admired on what they were doing on the sporting, you know, in the sporting arena. Hitting that first wave, were you nervous? Was it terrifying going out there or living at the beach? You're like, I love the water. I don't care what happens. Look, funny enough, when, when I was young, I um, pretty much um, I had a bit of a fear of the, of the ocean, you know, when I was about between six and probably 10 years old. And dad used to take me down and we used to do the nippers down there in, in uh, at Bronte. And Bronte's quite a dangerous beach. It's, it's probably between that and Tamarama, um, which is next to it. Is probably rated the second most dangerous on the east coast of Australia. So, you know that they say that if you can handle uh, Bronte, you can handle anywhere in the world. So it was sort of a tough beach, but Dad kept taking me out, and and, and I was petrified at the time. And I gradually got used to it as I got older. And when I first got my first uh, fiberglass surfboard, I think I was around twelve or thirteen, and then I was venturing out a bit more on my own and. And that's where you get the experience, just by gradually building up to, you know, bigger surf and and, and going from there. But, you know, it, it doesn't matter how good you get or how old you are or how young you are. It's something that the ocean's the ocean. It's more powerful than, than anyone out there. So you've got to have that respect for it. And um, it doesn't matter. You know, you can be the best surfer in the world and, and still uh, get belted by the surf. So you've always got to have that respect. If I even tried surfing, I'd probably be more like, can I stay up for like a second? I mean, even paddle boarding when you're just like standing up there, I'm like practicing. I'm like, oh, I could totally go do waves and stuff. Probably get out there and fall off in a second. <laughs> yeah, look, it's something that you need to, it's just something you just need to keep getting out there and doing. I mean, a lot of people want to start surfing. They start, they find it difficult and then don't do it again for for a while. It's something that um, I'm lucky when I grew up that after I finished school, I'd head down the beach and, and have a surf and, and, you know, weekends you'd be down there most of the day surfing. And, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, you don't feel the cold water. You don't feel uh, anything really. And you're in and out, you know, you, I remember going out surfing in the morning and you'd be down there at first light for the early and out you go and you'd spend two hours out there, come back and, you know, lunchtime you do the same thing again and then come out and have the hot chips on on a sandwich, you know, and, and, and warm up again and, and then you get an afternoon surfing before you went home. So, you know, you're doing it two to three times a day as a, as a kid and, you know, like any sport, if, if you're doing that two to three times a day, you start yeah. getting a bit better at it. 
for someone that works on the beach all year round, you see kids wanting to try surfing and getting out there at a young age. Are you kind of excited to see them have that passion for the sport? Yeah, no, it's really good. It's it's encouraging that, I mean, back in my day when I was coming through, if, if you didn't live near the beach or go down the beach, um, you, you wouldn't go surfing. It was, mm-hmm. you know, you go something else. These days with there's, um, you know, all the surf schools now have come on board over the last 20 years. Wetsuits have got a lot better. Um, there's a whole variety of different surfboards for different standards. So you can have the long board to, you know, a board that's a bit wider or you have a short board. And I think there's a lot of variety there now um, for people. And so there's way more people coming down, um, adults and kids, uh, learning to surf and it's good because it gives you that experience in the water and ocean and get the use to the ocean because we do have a lot of drowning uh, in Australia as as we do all around the world so you know more people can get out there surfing it gives you the knowledge on how the waves break how the rips work and you really get a good good understanding sometimes we're asked that fun question what's that dream job we want what was that dream job for you Oh, look, I sort of, I'd say now lifeguard is probably the dream job. It's got a great lifestyle. Uh, you've got to keep fit because you've got tests you've got to get through all the time to to pass to keep your job. And, you know, then you also get the skills in first aid and, and dealing with, um, you know, uh, quite tragic things with, with resuscitation and, and drowning. But it's a satisfaction as well. I mean, not when you don't get them back. There's plenty that... Um, you're unsuccessful with but that's a part of the job and so all around I think um you know your office is at the beach you get to meet so many different people all the time and <clears throat> the um Bondi I'm, I'm lucky because there's so many tourists come through mm-hmm. um you know the last couple of years probably you know because we can't travel there hasn't been many tourists but you know in, in Bondi and it's prime you could go down the south end and sometimes you could feel like you're in Brazil or you feel like you're in Italy or with the amount of uh, tourists that are there from various countries. And you get to probably you know, understand different cultures around the world without having to leave somewhere where I've grown up, that all the culture comes to Bondi and, and you know, it gives you a good understanding on how other people live around the world when you um, start having a chat to them. And it's something that, um, you know, I, I really enjoy and, Probably with lifeguard though, I, I fell into it in a, in a weird way that because I was doing a lot of ra- um, racing in the ocean, <clears throat> I needed to get a job that fitted in with the, the training. And so I never ever really thought about being a lifeguard. I, mean, I started when I left school, I was in uh, working at a radio station for about four years and win the sports team. And I was my ambition there was probably to go on and, and do something in that field. But I decided to. I enjoyed the racing. So I probably enjoyed being a part of the sport rather than being behind the scenes and commentating on the sport. I was, I was too competitive. You know, every time I'd uh, watch something, I'd, I'd want to be out there and competing. So that sort of swayed me to go, you know, continue the racing. And, and then that's what got me into um, being a lifeguard and something that uh, looking back now, <clears throat> it's probably a good thing that dad kept taking me out in the, the water as a kid, because then it gave me that ability to be able to do the job that I'm doing now. Could you imagine if people look at your story career and they're like, 
well, he wanted to be in radio and think if you stayed in that, how everything that has happened and all the accomplishments and experiences you've had, you probably would have never had if you didn't take that risk and went in a direction that felt comfortable for you. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, the funny thing is I went that way to be a lifeguard um, because of the sport. And then I've always done a little bit of radio. It always keeps dragging me back. And <laughs> I sort of touched on that as a bit of a, a part-time role, which it's worked out better because, you know, full-time and put everything into one basket. It's it's so uh, fickle of a, a business radio. You can be one minute you're on top, next minute you're out the door. So um, it's a bit more stable being a lifeguard. And then along comes Bondi Rescue with the TV show. And so I've been lucky that I've, I've, I've got a bit of best of both worlds now and, you know, lifeguard, but plus you get a profile also with um, the TV show, which goes internationally. And it's something that we probably didn't think was going to happen um, when I started as a lifeguard anyway. It was always known as a job you did before you went and got a real job. <laughs> and uh, here I am 30 years later, I'm still there. Talk about the beginning of your lifeguard career. Obviously, a lot of things have changed over time, but what was going through your mind? Did you enjoy it? Did you ever have that moment where, is this for me? Oh, well, look, when I first started, it was um, a, a job that was really only seasonal. So sort of September through to the end of April. Um, originally when I started early 1991, 92, um, I knew, well, I knew I had the ability in the water to do rescues, Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize what the job entailed apart from doing the rescues. I thought that's basically was the main part of the job. There's a lot more to being a lifeguard than just going and, uh, and, and pulling people in from the ocean. It's something that, uh, I found the observation side of it. Um, I had to pick that up quite quick and, and thinking of you got to concentrate so long in the hot sun all day yep. um, on, on watching people. And But when I started, we pretty much worked on our own at a lot of beaches. We started in the morning on your own before other the other guys had come in. At, at, you know, we started at six and then the next guy had been at nine. And it was probably a lot tougher back then because we only had rescue boards. There was no defibrillators. There was no jet skis. Um, you know, I remember turning up and I got handed a whistle with a key, um, a pair of shorts and, and a shirt um, and, and a hat. And, that, and they said, off you go. And, and uh, you're at, yeah, you're, you're at down the beach today. And there was no pre-training or anything like that. You just sort of had to pick it up on the job as you went. Um, and which, in hindsight, now looking back, we've got so much, so many more um, people that work now. The staff level's a lot higher. You know, we've got jet skis, we've got defibrillators. Our, all our equipment is um, way better now than what it was when I first started. And but the downside of that is the the young guys coming on now. They pretty much are used to working with you know five six people at Bondi a day mm-hmm. um, and then when you you take out one or two people they start panicking whereas I'm fine because I'm used to doing that back in the day with just me on my own so you get a lot more experience on your own and prioritizing what needs to be done first and you know and and have a a, a packing order there but I mean it's 
obviously you, you shouldn't work on your own. You need at least one other. But that's given me the experience of handling, you know, 30,000 people on a busy day at, at Bondi. Um, you know, you can do it quite easily with, you know, anything from four to five people the way our patrolling strategy is. You talked about working on your own and even you can take that same concept into the professional world where a lot of people think that if they work by themselves, they don't need anyone's help, especially with lifeguarding in some situations, you have to kind of work as a team in those situations on the behind the scenes. Are you guys doing like team building kind of things that kind of help bring everyone together instead of everyone thinking solo and going out there for themselves? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's all um, team orientated now. Probably the last 20, 20 odd years now, it's been uh, a lot of work gets done behind the scenes. A lot of um, training days. Uh, we, we, you know, we have a lot of major incidents, and what we do is we take those major incidents and put them in training. So we reenact what has happened over the last, you know, twenty odd years, and and put people in the same situation, and then we do the the rescue and um simulating pretty much what normally goes on down there and that sort of helped everyone working together as a team as what so yeah it, it's um a, a lot better now in the as a team environment and helping each other and it's probably easier now with more staff as well because you have got assistance each day and you can you know bounce ideas off each other and and work out the day more so than when you're on your own you're pretty much <clears throat> just had a radio and to speak to the other beaches you know no one's coming to help you and you had to really know the locals in those days because they were the ones that had to help you if you're out doing a rescue and you had two or three people at once mm-hmm. you have to rely on the board riders you knew or you might have a resuscitation you're on your own you're going to hope that there's someone walking past or around that can can jump in and give you a hand so you just had to know a lot more people from the public Whereas these days, the younger guys don't know as many of the local guys um, to what they to what we used to, because they've already got the team there to back them up if if they need uh, someone for assistance. What does your training consist of? Are you able to keep it going all year long, or when it's the off season, do you kind of have those guilty pleasures and enjoy some things you can't have during season? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a 12-month-a-year job now, so nothing really changes. The The training is, you know, if anything, we do more of our training during the winter months as it's a, you know, we don't get as big a crowds as we do in the summer. So that allows us to to do more specific training. I mean, every day the everyone gets an hour to go training, whether that's, you know, swimming, board paddling, surfing, running or, or in the gym or you know, whatever that is on the day. And then we do have specific days um, once a month where we get the half a team in at a time and we do the scenario training with the resuscitation um, qualifications to spinal, to, to the jet ski and run all different types of uh, training specific to the job. So that's continual. Um, when we come into summer, we don't really have as much time to do the training because it's it's so busy at the beach and, so it's basically like a football team where we do the pre-season and, and train up and all be ready and then come our busy time, which is pretty much December, January, February is, our, is probably our peak of the summer. 
and that's like we're going in playing our grand final. We're uh, ready to go for those three months, and then it starts backing off again after that. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of how it works. I am jealous that your December, January months, it's a hot winter. And here where I'm at, it's like, we're lucky it's even 50 degrees outside or <laughs> well, cold weather. It's always, I think it's just amazing that you guys just keep it going all year long, because like you said, it's a 12 month job and it's different than like lifeguards for a pool where the pool could be closed at certain times, but doesn't stop you. No, that's right. I mean, we still get a lot of people in the water. The wetsuits are so good these days, but we're lucky too in in Sydney. I mean, for an example, today the minimum temperature was 12. We'll get up to about 18, 19 uh, degrees today, and that this is our mid-winter. Uh, the water is still around that 18 degrees, um, which for us is starting to get a bit cool. We, we'll get down to probably 15 degrees in the water is probably the worst we'll get, which generally comes in around that August, September, but, you know, sometimes we're lucky that it stays up around that 17 degrees and which is not too bad, you know, considering to uh, the rest of the world. I mean, I know over your way, it gets a lot colder in the water. I think summer yep. doesn't get much more than 18 degrees. Does it? <laughs> nope. Even during the summer when I've gone to on like trips to like the beach, no, it's still cold. It doesn't yeah. want to warm up at all. <laughs> so, so we're lucky. Our, our environment is quite good for um, outdoors and even though, um, you know, p- people coming from other countries, they're out sunbaking in the middle of our winter because they're coming from countries which yeah. their summer, like especially England, um, they come out here and our winter's as good as their summer. So they think it's, it's fantastic out here. Was being a chief lifeguard ever on your radar when you became a lifeguard where you're like, am I going to get to this spot? Or did the opportunity came about and you're like, I want to go for it? Look, no, not really. It was never – when I first started as a lifeguard, I thought I'll just do five years and because um, in those days when you did five years, they then you became a senior lifeguard. And I thought, well, I'll just aim to become a senior lifeguard and then I'll go do something else. If I want to come back, I can come back and you're still at that senior lifeguard level. Um, I suppose the big, the big thing was we had the Olympic Games in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, where they had the beach volleyball on Bondi beach and you had um, a 10,000 seat stadium was built on the sand. At that point, we had a few guys leave that had a lot of experience. Um, and we sort of had to split the beach in two. And I sort of had the idea of we'll just work it as two separate beaches because at high tide, it was coming up hitting the back of the stadium. So we couldn't get from the South end to the North end. So I could just see that, well, why don't we put um, a, a shed or a, a tower at the north end and have people working there and then you've got the south end and we just work it out. Low tide, you could get through um, and just work it as two separate beaches. And that's sort of the council that we work for decided, yeah, that's not a bad idea, we'll do that. And I suppose then I realised other things that I, I thought we could improve on and the other thing that really um, probably stemmed in my mind was that we were losing a lot of experience and, and we did lose a lot of experience before the Olympic Games. And it was because it was technically not really a professional job at that stage. Was, as I said before, it was a job you did before you went and got a real job. Mm-hmm. And people just would move on and, 
and do other go into other careers you know whether they be studying through that time or or whatever a lot of them go to be paramedics or, or in the fire brigade as well from lifeguards so we're losing a lot to, to those um those jobs and i thought well why don't we make it more of a career and um then i started having the vision of, of, of all these different things we can do and to keep people and and make it into a professional job and from there i suppose um, I sort of fell into that role. It was nothing that I I thought I'd go for. I was probably lucky that a lot of this, the the ch- chief lifeguard and a lot of others moved on, and I suppose I was last man standing. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I had a, a bit of vision that that people maybe could see that okay, um, we'll put you in that role. And I just sort of fell into that role. And I mean, the rest is history. I've been doing that now since the Olympics at two thousand. So it's been what twenty twenty two years. Wow. Um, in in that role is a you know and I've enjoyed it. I, it's probably the reason that it's kept me there this long is because I can make a difference. I can make decisions um, in the role I'm in. Um, you know, you don't always get it right, but uh, yeah. And 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 the guys that they'll let you know when you don't get it right. Tell, let me tell you that one. But it's um, you know, and you're always bouncing ideas off off well, everyone that's working there and coming through and different eras and and it's amazing that how much it's changed from from me starting the 90s to to now it's um yeah it's a total different job to what it was when I first started and so yeah that's probably pretty much how I um fell into this role and never expected it and but one thing that I, I do remember and and I think this is something that with being a leader um I think it's built in to be a good leader because I was always very quiet and shy as a kid um, and never said much. And, and even now I don't say a heap. I just sort of, you know, I'm a bit more, a bit more vocal than I used to be, but I found I always ended up being the captain of the cricket team. And I, I played a lot of field hockey and I was a, a captain there. And I sort of ended up in, always ended up in these roles of, of, um, where you can influence different um, decisions and being a decision maker. And I always wondered why they put me in as captain because I hardly said anything. And then <laughs> a, a guy, um, one of the coaches pulled me aside one day and I said, well, I don't know why I'm doing this. He said, well, the reason is, is because people respect you for whatever reason. Also, he said, when you sit and watch, he said, when you do say something, everybody sits and listens. Mm-hmm. Whereas you see other people, I mean, you can train people to be a manager, but then you sit in a room and sometimes you'll, you'll have someone speaking and other people be speaking, not listening as much. Then you'll see other people come up and speak and you can hear a pin drop in the room. And I think that's the difference. Now, I don't know. To me, it must be building because I've never been trained in that. That's just something I've naturally do so maybe other people can be trained to do that i'm not sure but i think it's something that um um is is unique and and also with major incidents it's funny that everything slows down for me so if i've got a major incident with resuscitation someone could just drop dead with a heart attack in front of me it's like it's all goes into slow motion it feels like a second i've got 10 minutes Mm -hmm. It's just crazy how my mind just seems to slow everything down. The, 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 
more sort of intense it is, the, the, the better my mind slows down. So, yeah, it, it's something that's unique and, and, and maybe that's why I'm in that role, you know, as a lifeguard. And, and the other thing too is it's a great lifestyle, like I said, but it's not designed, everyone can't be a lifeguard, even if you're really yeah. good in the water. You could be great in the water, great all that. I've had people that have been great swimmers, board paddlers, but their observation skills and, and attention span is terrible. So if someone's drowning 100 metres down the beach, right, you could have someone that's half as fast in swimming and board paddling, but they'll get themselves to that position to go and rescue the person. And then the person that's really fast doesn't see the person drowning and then the person will drown. So it doesn't matter how fast you swim and paddle. And because I have a lot of people come up saying that they, their, you know, daughter or son, are, oh, they've just won Australian titles and they're, they're great swimmers and fast and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, that's a part of it, but it's not the biggest quality because if you don't see someone drowning, it doesn't matter how fast you are at anything, you, they're still going to drown. Well, you mentioned being a leader. And I think even when people are watching you on Bondi Rescue, they see that you're hands-on. Like you're not someone that's just sitting in the office, just on the walkie-talkie, just telling people what to do. If there's a moment or someone needs help, you'll come right out of your office and you're there because, and I think that just shows the respect that your coworkers have for you because you're part of a team and you want to be helpful because people's lives are on the line and you'll want to do anything to get out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I mean, a lot of my role these days is a, a lot of office side of it and overseeing everybody. And, but I believe that, um, you know, I still, there's a lot of other lifeguard services where people in my position then don't do the physical tests anymore and, you know, don't get on the, on the beach as much, but I still do the physical test. I still get on the beaches, you know, in the busy time or as much as I can to help out. But I think it works both ways because, as you said, if you if I'm just sitting in the office all the time and someone comes up complaining that something's not going right, I'll sit back and think of how I used to do it or how it used to be and you'd say, no, no, that's the way. It's all right. Do it that way or everything like that. But once you go out there and work with the team, then you realise, okay, what they're saying is right. We, we need to tweak it a bit because something's not working. So you're working in with them. Um, and I, I think that should be taken into account, you know, whether you're a manager or, or a leader in, in an office work space or whatever job you're doing, I think there should be a percentage of hands-on. Yeah. Um, and it definitely helps you as a, as a manager or a leader because – as you said, it gives you the respect. You're not just sitting in the office and then you just come out barking orders to, to the staff. You know, that's that's the easiest way to get people offside and, and no respect and things like that. So I, I find that that's a great way to, to, to manage and, and not micromanage either. It's pretty much let them do what they do and only pull people up on certain things. If you see maybe they're not doing something 100%, but there's ways of doing that too where you might just say, oh, look, I'll come and do some jet ski training, you know, in a couple of days, you set it up and, and you sort of go do that with them. And then rather than tell them they've done something wrong, it's pretty much just using it in a way where 
well, let's go on the jet ski. And then oh, what they've done wrong, I'll say, oh, just do this. And say, oh, what about just do it this way? Try it this way. And then they'll do it that way. And they go, oh, yeah, that was that was better. So you haven't sort of put people down. And, and it's something that I suppose takes a lot of patience because you, you can, you know, see something. You say, why are they doing it that way? And, you know, you get a bit um, abrupt or something. But you just got to take that step back and... Um, one of the good examples I've got is I always believe that I want lifeguards to come and work at the beach that really want to work there. Yes. You know, a lot of people just go do a job because they're getting paid or that. what gets a lot of people go, oh, I'm leaving this job because I'm going to another job because it's paying me more money. Doesn't mean you're going to be happy. You, know, exactly. you, get more money, you could be miserable going to work every day. Okay. I'm getting extra money, but I'm miserable. So I basically wanted people to be there that, that wanted to be there. And the way we did it was we dropped out the pool swim was the easiest way because that's a very consistent way of, of timing. It's exactly the same as the ocean part of the test can vary depending on, you know, the size of the surf and conditions and things. So I thought it was 800 metres under 14 minutes. I thought, well, why don't we drop it to 13 minutes? And there were certain people that were between that 13 and 14 minutes in the 800 pool swim. And, they blew up going, oh, like, no, I'm never going, now you're getting rid of me as a, you know, I'm not going to be able to work here and all this sort of stuff. And I said, no, well, if you really want to work here, you'll go to whatever you need to do to get under 30 minutes. Now, these guys went off and they just did a little bit extra. And so from swimming about 13, 30, you know, roughly, then suddenly they're doing 12, 40 to get under mm-hmm. the 13 minutes. And this other guy was going, well, I'm getting older and, you know, it's going to be harder and all this. Anyway, so he would have been about 40 at the time we changed it. He he left about when he, he was probably 50, early 50s. He was then doing his last year in his early 50s. He was swimming 1220. Wow. Right? So he was getting well on because he wanted to be there. He'd do the work to be able to get him to 13. But prior when he was 40, he was doing 1330. So the age getting older didn't matter. It was the point of trying to get the mentality that if you want to be here, you'll do the work to be. If you don't want to be here and you don't want to put the work in, well, you won't be here. So it's as easy as that. And I mean, a lot of workplaces are, are, are very similar. They've all, obviously everyone, fire brigade, paramedics, all different um, jobs have got certain standards you've got to keep keep at to, to stay in the job but i'm just not a believer of because um, a lot of people uh, have tried to go well as you get older you need to make the test easier for older but i've never agreed with that because the issue i've got is when you go out in the ocean the ocean doesn't care whether you're 18 30 nope. 60 no matter what it is so if you make the test easier that they're getting through then they've got to go out and do a rescue with someone from the public in in some dangerous conditions I then worry that I'm putting that person that I've passed in a test into conditions they may lose their life. So the test, the test, if you make it, same as if I ever, you know, if I can't make the, the times and, the, and, the, and do the test, well, you know, it's time to move on. It's, um, you know, that that's the way it is. And that's the way I believe that it should be. And and whether you're female, male, doesn't matter. If, if, if you pass the test, you 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 know, and your credentials are good, you're, you're on. It doesn't matter who you are. So 
that's something we've we've really kept solid and, and it has kept the team um, working harder because if someone is slipping a bit, yeah, everyone else will jump in and say, let's go swimming or let's go board paddling. Let's, you know, to try and get them uh, do a bit more and motivate them so that they do get through. You've had a, a, quite a few accomplishments in your lifeguarding career with in 2006, winning lifeguard of the year in Australia, winning gold medals in life surf or life-saving surfing. How has those played an impact in your career? Do you feel that this was made for you that you enjoy? And you talked about not just the pay. It's not just all about the pay. It's all about the experience, helping people, being by the beach and things like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, the awards are great when you get acknowledged by your peers and, you know, I won that, um, yeah, 2006. And I recently, actually, two years ago, won again the, the Lifeguard of the Year as well. So that's twice now. And, and I was made life member of the Lifeguard Association and, you know, and I'm currently the president of it as well. So it's, um, you know, the accolades are great. It's um, something that... Uh, you know, you can sit back and, and, and especially, I suppose, when you retire and go, geez, I've had a, a good career. And, and uh, the racing side of it, I enjoy racing. I'm very competitive, so I enjoy that. And, you know, I try and compete in something as, as long as I can. Um, and, and I really enjoy it. And, you know, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not just about, you know, the accolades. And like you said, it's, it's not just about the money. Um, obviously, everyone needs money to live. But, yeah, you know, my passion is 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 to... Um, obviously, you know, have people enjoy coming to the beach and going home with their family, not going home with the family uh, without a part of the family and tragically is drowned. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm running a, a big campaign now, Float to Survive. And floating, if you learn to float, it will minimise your chance of drowning. And so I've really gone into a, a lot more of... of the water safety side of it as well and, and helping different, you know, whether it's lifeguard services or just water safety around the world. Also, the big one I, I found is people come that come and work with us at Bondi as lifeguards, I like to see that they come on and, and get the skill that, that they need but also become better people if they leave the service and, and you know, um, and we try and encourage that as well. So when they come on, we give them a skill set that they can go away and, and, and realise that by being a part of this team, whether it's for a year or, or 10 years, that they've gone away being a better person. With Bondi Rescue being an international hit, it's definitely one of those things where it's more informative than anything, where it teaches people how they should be aware of what's going on at the beach, where do they need to swim, the safety precautions. When you're filming that first season, were you ever worried about what people are watching on TV, the scary things that they're seeing, but then thinking, this is supposed to teach people how to be better at the beach and things like that? Yeah, look, I mean, it's funny. Bondi Rescue came about, um, Ben Davies was the creator. He came on and he was in TV as a producer, but he's a local Bondi guy. And he came on to be a lifeguard the summer before. Um, and he just wanted to be a casual because there wasn't much TV work over that that summer period. So he thought, I'll come on and be a casual lifeguard. And, 
we put him on and at the end of that year he, he came to me and said oh, i think there's a tv show in what we do as lifeguards mm-hmm. and i said i think i laughed at him and said mate oh, how the hell would i know you know <laughs> and uh he said well let me have a look and, and he went away and came back and said let's do a, a little pilot which was about a five minute little uh pilot um program and then that got pitched to all the networks and Channel 10 picked it up originally. But it was only ever going to be an hour special. That's all it was ever going to be. And what happened was all this footage kept coming back. And, and I was there one day and we had a resuscitation of this uh, Takahiro, which is a, a, a Japanese guy who dropped dead on the shore break. And the cameras were there and we captured him from the time we ran in doing the resus. We got him back even to the stage, which is very rare, that he was we shocked him three times and he came back to where he was speaking to us, which normally they're still unconscious when they leave the beach after a major um, uh, heart attack. So he was speaking. Then they followed it to the hospital and he ended up getting a defibrillator. He's only 23 years old. He had a defect in his heart and just happened to collapse. But we thought he may have swallowed water and drowned on the on the water's edge. So we're treating it more as a drowning as a 23 year old than what it was a heart attack. Anyway, all that footage went back and and that was the first time anywhere in the world that a resuscitation had been captured from the start to the finish. And normally, you know, the time TV crews get there, it's basically half over all over and they're on their way in their ambulance and they've captured the whole lot. Um, once that went back to the executives and, and plus all the other rescues and, and, and first aids and they've gone, oh, look, we think there could be a series. We've got too much for an hour. We're going to make it a series. So it went to a series and then the rest is history. And that, that uh, resuscitation was being played at every training all around the world. It pops up and people contact me and said, oh, I just saw you doing the, we just got trained and, and that video, they showed us that video and, you know, which is about 17 years ago now. So, um, and the funny thing is resuscitation has, tra- has changed a bit to what, you know, it was a lot slower back then, the compressions to, to now is a lot faster. So it's, it's probably a little bit out of date now. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, but they still show it here and there and they show now the other resuscitations we've done. But I think all that's what what then put it on the map. And, and you know, we're probably a bit hesitant on how they were going to betray us in, you know, on, on TV as well. And, but, you know, it's always been done in, in, a, in a good way. And we get to see the, the, the rough cut before it goes to wear and they, they touch it up ready for the final product. So we've got a little bit of control over that as well. But I'm a believer that everything we do, even mistakes we make, should go on. So it shows that we're not, we're not perfect um, and we need to show the good with the bad, um, you know, so... And, and where we can improve, but it's been uh, yeah, it's been a nice ride, though. Do you ever watch previous seasons, or you're like, I live it, so why do I need to go back and relive these moments? Or do you kind of you'd mentioned how people are always using that tape as training? Do you use it as training to see what has happened in the past and how can your team get better? <coughs> um, yeah, look, we're um, we're lucky that we get the rough cut. We don't use the final cut because, as, and the problem with the final cut in a resuscitation or something major, because there's only a certain time of, of TV, they will cut certain things out 
Mm-hmm. And then people say, oh, you, you guys didn't do this or didn't do that. Well, we did do it, but it just got edited out because it's only a, a you know, half an hour TV show, which is basically 22 minutes with the, when you throw in the ad breaks. So what we do for training, which is great, is we, they give us the raw footage. So we can just look at the raw footage and which captures everything. And that's a great tool. It's a great tool to say, look, just this is what we did really well. Maybe we need to just, um, you know, we missed doing this or we just needed this bit better. It's, it's a really good tool to sit back and, and review. Um, and we get the, the person that um, the paramedics that come in and train us. So they sit with us as well. We play the footage and then um, they give us um, feedback on that as well. So it's, it's really, really good to give us um, you know, positive feedback that it's only going to improve us and the team. Something that the show does is you really get to know the lifeguards. You kind of learn them on a personal level. Then if you just went to the beach and have no interaction or they just walk up to you, do you feel that you've learned more about your staff watching their confessionals or their confidential room interviews and things like that? Or what about yourself? Do people hear things you say about your life or things you tell? And they're like, I didn't know that about you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you do. You get times where people don't know, you know, everything about you. And one thing, though, with people that come from all around the world and, and, and come to Bondi, and it was funny that it took at the beginning, people would say, oh, you're exactly the same as what you are on TV. <laughs> yeah, because I'm playing myself. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. <laughs> um, so that that's probably what made me think, oh, yeah, because if you're an actor, you're playing a role. Yep it could be total opposite to your real personality and, and people get disappointed because they're expecting the person they see on TV. That's the personality they're going to get in real life. And it potentially could be the opposite. So we're lucky that way that what they see on TV is, is what, what they get in real life as well. And, you know, it, it works, um, it works well there, but with, with a lot of the, the lifeguards, it's been good because a lot of people are scared to say what their weakness is. And now by this, they're not that hesitant now. They say, look, I'm a bit, I was a bit weak in the, in the jet ski. I might need to do a bit more work. Or I, or I realised that, geez, I should have known to do that better, but I didn't. But now I'm looking at it myself on, on the uh, TV with the rough cut. They'll go, yeah, geez, I didn't do that. I need to be more on the ball for that. So it does help in, in that way. Um, that people then understand uh, what, what their weaknesses are and, and myself as well. And, and also I'm a believer that if everyone works on their weakness, um, that brings the whole team up. You know, if you work on your weakness by 5%, the whole team lifts um, as a team and people had that, that, Oh, if I tell people my weakness, I'll they're gonna get rid of me. I'm going to get sacked. And you know, that, that stereotype of, but what I explained to them, I said, but yeah, but your weakness is above the bar we're setting to be a lifeguard. Because if your weakness was below that, and this is with anybody in any job, mm-hmm. if your weakness is below what that job entails, you wouldn't have got the job. Yep. So your weakness is generally above that bar. <clears throat> now, if you sit back and don't work on your weakness, it won't be long before your weakness does drop below the bar. And no doubt around the world, everyone in certain jobs have done that and then suddenly found themselves getting ushered out the doors because of that reason. So 
you've always got to be aware of your weakness. It's tough working on your weakness because you're not that good at it. You're, you always want to do something that's, you know, you're really good at because it's so easy. It's natural to do. Um, you still got to work on your, on your, your good stuff as well, but that's easy to do. So we always try and work on the weakness to, to keep that above that bar. I love that you mentioned about getting better at your weakness. Cause even for me, anything that I am struggling at, I'm always thinking, okay, how can I get better? Where can I learn to get better? Even at my work, I'm always messaging bosses. I'm like, how can I get better? And then when I tell them I'm more interactive, let me be hands-on. Don't give me something that's a pamphlet so I can just read it. I want to really experience it because I'll learn better. And it sounds like that's what you do. Like you want your coworkers to tell you their weakness so that you can help them because if they get better, you become a better, stronger team. Yeah, hundred percent. And that, that's where you've got to get rid of that. Um, the culture of not to tell people your weakness because you're not going to get better. As you said, if you don't ask. Yeah. Um, and the other thing too, is a lot of people don't realize maybe what their weakness is. You know, they might realize that they need to work on something unless someone tells them, you know, you need to work on this area and which will help you in the, in the long run. Um, and like I said before, if you don't work on it, well, that just gets worse until then you basically then get exposed in, in whatever work you do. And, you know, it might be too late to try and fix it. As a fellow podcast host, you host your own show where you really learn from people and their experience and even have members of your team come on. And it shows the bond that you guys have. What's been your favorite part on hosting your own show? Oh, look, yeah, I'm hosting my podcast, Life's a Beach. And, you know, it's it's been great. It's been an eye-opener. It's been listening to people's stories and and. You know, life's a beach and life's also a bitch. So it's basically about <laughs> people with good stories, but every single person out there on this planet goes through a tough time. Obviously, some people go through tougher than others, but we all have a tough time. No one escapes life without going through some sort of a, you know, tragedy or tragedy or, or, or real tough, you know, times and or dark times. And I found... A lot of people that I've been interviewing have all had something and, and they're happy to speak about it. And what's happening is it's making it, it's normalizing that people do have tough times and yep. it's helped the listeners who give feedback and say, Oh, geez, I didn't realize. I thought I was the only person that was going through whatever it was. And, you know, I'll have, whether it's sportsmen on or whether it's actors or whether it's, you know, just the, a normal person with a, with a good story, um, people then realise, you know, it doesn't matter. You can be a multi-billionaire. They're still going to go through tough times. Um, it, it doesn't matter who you are. And, and by normalising that, it's really helping society because social media these days, it, it, to me, it, it, it's a tough one because everyone puts up how great their life's going. Yep. But in the background, it might not be what that is but people watching that think you know everybody like say myself they think because i'm on tv i'm working this unbelievable job at the beach my <laughs> life must be perfect you know but um yeah it's not it's not always perfect um and that's something that um it, it's been great with the podcast to, to listen to people's stories and, and also it's been giving me ideas as well to take back to work on, on the way 
that they dealt with things because someone could come to work as a lifeguard and having issues outside of work, that can really affect them, you know, if they're not 100% switched on, it doesn't take much to miss someone drowning, but it's not because they're not good at the job, it's because they've got something else going on outside of work that's affected them and they've brought that to work. So it's identifying when people are in those positions or having those dark times or, or tough times. That's why I love listening to your show because it kind of connects with my show where we share stories. And even when I'm hearing people talk about their stories, I try to take something that they've utilized in their lives and adapt it into mine, knowing that our lives can be completely different, but they'll say something and it's like, oh, I can relate to that. I didn't know that they went through that. They kind of surprise the listeners with maybe something that they didn't know. And I've had that with some guests. You would know them from being on tv but they say something like where was this information this wasn't out in like the newspapers or magazines or articles and i think that's what kind of brings this higher ups the celebrities to they're just normal people they're going through the same stuff they just might not showcase it a lot than a regular person yeah that's right it's it's you know you, you don't see it as much as what you know and, and you know, you only see the people you're hanging around with and, and what they're going through, you know, close friends and family and, and, and things like that. And, yeah, there's always um, someone that's doing it doing it tougher than you are as well. So you've got to uh, weigh it all up. And, and, and I suppose also not take life for granted. I think a lot of people just take a lot of things for granted. And, and we all seem to complain about the tiny, tiny yeah. things that's happening in the day, you know, that's something went wrong and, you sort of hang on to that all day and, you know, it's where at the end of the, the end of the day, it's probably you should have let it go after about five or 10 minutes. And I think it's just trying to learn how to deal with that and, and how to get over things. Um, and, and it's about yourself. It's more about looking after yourself and what you're doing. I think a lot of people, and I was just not now I'm, I'm not because I've got through all that and, and understand more about myself, but you sort of, always wanting to please other people or what they think that you should be or should be like, you know, you're trying to please so many people. Whereas in the day, you just need to please yourself. Someone listening to this might think who's Bruce. I only know him as Hoppo. How did that nickname come about? Because on TV, you only go by that name or people are only saying that name. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, my last name's Hopkins, and, and Dad was always nicknamed Hoppy. So <laughs> I um, I just ended up with Hoppo. So, and it, it stuck at a young age, um, and it's something that um, has just stuck by me all, all, all my life. And so many people call me Hoppo now that a lot of people don't even know what my, my real name <laughs> is, <laughs> which is a good thing at times. You just slide on the radar, yep. you know? <laughs> do you ever have those moments where when you're like signing something you don't even put your first name you just put hoppo and you think oh that's just my name i mean i go by that all for people well, talk to me well i do now you only sign things as hoppo that's it that's <laughs> all that's all i sign it as now so yeah yeah it, it, it is funny and it's something that uh, the funny thing though is when i'm out and about you know whether i go in a state or overseas or, or or people come down the beach I actually forget about the show and everything. And people, or I might be sitting in a, in a pub and people come up and go, oh, can I get a photo and things like that. And I just, so I've got to take a second to go, oh, right, that's right. <laughs> they recognise me from the TV. And 
you know, sometimes when you're just having fun and doing your own thing, you forget all about the, you know, TV and, 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 and your personality and the profile. And it's, sometimes it's a bit of a surprise when people come up. And also in, in other countries, it's amazing because I might be getting around with just normal clothes, a hat on, and how yeah, the hell could you recognise me over here? Like, <laughs> the last place you think I'd be, and they still recognise you. It's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a weird feeling. It's, it's nice. Like everybody loves being, um, you know, recognized and and also you know someone coming up asking for your photo it's a you know it's it's great for your ego you know you enjoy that type everyone does people say oh no i don't like it but yeah everyone loves being um acknowledged in in some way um doesn't matter who you are you know like you said anyone could be in their job and get acknowledged for the work they're doing or you can be acknowledged for doing something nice to you know for someone in the street and and be acknowledged for that and it just gives you a bit of a lift and a buzz with being a public figure, sometimes even you look at celebrities and it's their lives get chaotic and stuff. Do you feel it's different with this type of show you do and then being a public figure and go- being in the public eye? It's not that feeling. You're just a normal person. Just you're getting your career showcased to a bigger platform. Yeah, I mean, it does have its downsides because, you know, if you, if you are seen doing things not hundred percent correct or, yep. or out in the public eye, uh, it does end up in the, in the paper. Um, so you basically, even though we're getting filmed doing a job that we're an actual job we do, um, it does put more pressure on once you get that profile. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, you gotta be careful on, on what you're doing and, you know, out the pub or, or wherever you are, uh, because it doesn't take much for someone to, snap a photo or take a video and then send that to the media and you can get yourself in, you know, a bit of trouble. But we're like, probably like football teams, you know, a lot of football teams get in trouble and for whatever that, you know, or a lot of sports teams that are they're traveling around. And so we sort of put ourselves in that topic, that category as well. Now that we're sort of like a football team and, you know, if you do anything outside the norm, it's a good chance to be in the paper. I mean, you did have an episode where you did play, so- uh, well, soccer, but football on the beach against some tourists, and you guys were working hard as a team, but I think you guys just got a little bit more practice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you did not do too well, and I think. <laughs> but it just shows the fun you guys have. I think you take, like, you have those moments where it's serious on the show, but it just shows the fun, the like the bond you guys have, because... I think that's what people just connect with each one of you is you're pe- you're great people out there. And that's, what's inspiring. Your stories are all inspiring the backgrounds of each one of you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is. And, and a lot of people have referred us to that, which you'd probably know it's American the show mash. Yeah. Um, they refer us to mash and, and it's like, we have the fun and the jokes and we, we bag each other. That's the, the Australian culture is to, you know, take the piss out of each other and, and bag <laughs> each other. Um, you know, and, and in the growing up as a kid at the beach, if, if they weren't doing that meant they didn't like you, mm-hmm. if they were bagging you, well, that means they like you. It's a, it's a, it's a weird one. And we'd all joke around. I mean, but then on the other hand, when things are going down and it's, it's, you know, time for work, everyone's then in the serious mode and, and, and in that work mode and take everything very, very serious. So, there's a fine line, but, you know, I think we balance it quite well from the serious stuff to the, to the fun stuff. 
And like any workplace, though, you, you can't have it been that serious all the time either because yep. you'd go demented, um, you know, if it's serious. And, and I mean, I've seen a lot of workplaces that, because I do a lot of talks to um, companies on team building, and a lot of them say, they say they sit in a cubicle and you're not allowed to get up and do anything and you can't speak to the person next to you and you can't do this, you can't do that. And, you know, it must be terrible just, been so structured and strict and, and and serious you know there should be a place for that but then there should be a place of of, of being you know a bit of fun and relax yep. and you work a lot better that way um you know and, and training breaks i mean everyone has lunch breaks but i think exercise breaks are good too we're lucky because we're at the beach and we get to do that but when guys do the exercise they come back so much more mentally stimulated and when i do my talks i say that you know, people, I know companies want the work out of people for the hours, but I say, if you give them an hour to go, you know, run around the block or, or go to a Pilates class or whatever the, the thing is, if you can put that into your company, when they come back, you'll get way more work out of them. And yep. by doing that, if they're finishing at five, they're liable to stay back longer till six because they're stimulated from being able to go training. Then they feel as though, oh, I should get my work done because they've let me go do my Pilates class. So rather than rushing out doing your, your Pilates and everything at night uh, and training at night, and then you're getting up in the morning and coming to work again, I think the balance um, and the work ethic is, becomes a lot better. I agree. I, I like that whole work because I even do that in my work. And during my lunch break, I go biking. Because when I come back, I'm like, I feel more alive. I feel more focused to get the, and I'm, I don't care if I have to work extra time because I feel more alive that I want to get the work done. Yeah. hundred percent. And and it works. And, and you've got that done at, you know, in the middle of the day. Yes. Whereas if you've worked all day and then it comes five, six o'clock and you go, oh, now I got to go for a bike ride. It's <laughs> nope. no, I'm, no, I'm going home instead, you know? So you know, and that afternoon you, 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 you're thinking about, oh, I should go for a bike ride, oh, but I'm tired. And, and, and you're not working that well through yeah. that afternoon anyway. So it's worth, I reckon, companies, they'll let them do the hour. They'll get way more out of the, out of the staff than, than what they do is, is, and being real strict and serious the whole time. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, both personally and professionally? Oh, look, personally, is, is, is probably continuing to, to become a better person and, and helping people and, 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 I suppose, sharing my knowledge that I've got over all these years, um, you know, through the podcast, through working as a lifeguard, uh, speaking to people, going to doing uh, corporate talks, what I've learned from all that and give back to, to people and, and give advice and trying to help as many people as possible and, and also the with with float to survive and you know if I can leave a legacy where drowning around the world has um, has reduced it's something that that's my ultimate goal is to reduce drowning around the world uh, on the lifeguard professional side look as far as that's done I've pretty much done everything um, possible as a professional lifeguard obviously you're still learning There's, you're never not learning yeah but. On the professional side of that, I think I've done um, pretty much everything I can do and I'll continue doing that and uh, as, as probably as long as I can. But 
training up other other people to you know take take over my role and 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 build them up to to do that and and then you know my, I suppose to answer your question it, it would be to have someone come up you know one or two or whoever it is to replace me in, in the role I'm doing now and then from there uh, in my later years is really I'd love to be able to just travel the world and and you know educate people on you know flight to survive and, and and water safety messaging and also consulting with different lifeguard services to make them as professional and as good as they possibly can be um that would be the ultimate goal as well uh moving uh moving forward the final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Oh, look, everyone's got to have their goals, but I think what happens is people have goals and they try and get to them too quick. I think you need a, you've got an end goal, which is great, but you need small stepping stones because you might go and get two quick little goals, but then you might get a couple of setbacks and not get to the next lot of goals you want to get to. I think people have too big of a goal and then what happens is they don't achieve you know, earlier on mm-hmm. and then they give up. They give up on the goal. So have little goals, which will then stepping stones to get to the ultimate goal. And I think that's what I've done throughout my life. I've, you know, it's taken me, what I've been speaking about today on your podcast hasn't happened overnight. It's This has been 30 years of working 38-hour weeks, you know, <laughs> at the beach to, to get the knowledge and, and know-how. And there's been a lot of goals that I've set that haven't come off in that period. And there's been a lot of setbacks as well. There's been a lot of positives. There's been a lot of negatives. So you know, not, nothing's come easy. So have that goal and, and to rise the challenge is pretty much never give up. I think that's the big thing. I think a lot of people give up. I see it in the younger generation today. If they don't get what they want in a short period of time, yep. they then give up. Um, oh, no, it's too hard now. I don't want to do that anymore. You know, and then try and go to something else. But every time they do that, they're just going to have the same problem. Yep. Right. Exactly. It doesn't matter. It's, it's the same mentality. Well, if that doesn't work straight away, well, I'm going to give up on it. Well, that's always going to happen. So you need to keep positive, but also just never give up. You might have a brick wall come up in front of you. We just got to sit back and go, right. Uh, that's a brick wall. I still got my goal over here. Now, how am I going to work that to get to that, you know, stepping stones again. Um, and then hopefully I'll get to that goal. So it's a, you know, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and years and years to, to, to get there, you know, and um, that's something that when I speak at corporate gigs and that, and it all sounds quite easy, but I've been there and done it for the, all these years. If I'm talking to someone that's only in their twenties, they say, oh yeah, but it's, it's easy for you to do this. this, this. But I was in your position at 23 as well. Uh, when I was making the decision, do I keep racing and go into being a lifeguard or do I stick with being in radio, you know, around that 22 years old? And I had to make the decision and I said, well, right, well, what's my ultimate goal is 
or my short-term goal was to race. Mm-hmm. So what do I need to do to, to be able to be able to train and to be able to get paid to do the something that I really want to do in the short-term goal? And that was lifeguards. The decision then was made, okay, I'll leave that radio, then go do that, which was a short-term goal. But at the end of the day, the short-term thing without me knowing it gave me the stepping stone to become where I am today. And as you said earlier on in the podcast, if I had have not done that because I be, I was worried about, oh, but, you know, I'm better off staying in radio because it's in those days is more the, the glamorous thing and if you're working in radio and all that sort of stuff. But my life could have been way worse if I, if I stuck and took that decision. So, and, and I think the other thing too is what I look at is history is history. What you've done in the past, what's happened in the past, a lot of people still dwell on that. And, mm. and I used to do that myself. But now I've realised I can't change the past. So why do I need to worry about it? Mm-hmm. And then the future, I've got my goals, but I don't know if, what the future holds either. Yep. I shouldn't worry too much about the future. So when you look at it, I really should just look at my goal today. And once that's achieved, tomorrow's a new goal, right? So I think a lot of people dwell on the past. A lot of people have got these massive, um, you know, what's happening in the future. But you really don't know where the past's going to lead either. So I think it's um, pretty much your day-to-day stuff is, is your big um, your big win. And if you get your goals each day, it's amazing how quick, if, you, if you're achieving your goals each day, it's amazing how quick that ultimate goal comes along. Well, Hoppe, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.